Overnights with Martin Kellner. There is a place I'd give the world to see Where the music's softly playing And the rhythm's gently swaying Underneath the stars in a million bars Guitars are softly saying Mexico You got to be in so much to see in Mexico Got a single on, haven't you? Fantastic. Uh, there we go. Uh, Long John Baldry introducing our regular uh, spot from Latin America. Uh, Delighted like to say we're joined from Campeche in Mexico by uh, John Bonfilio. Uh, John, very good morning to you. Hello, how are you? How crazy uh, that that song is still as catchy it's as amazing, it was isn't it? the first time we heard it. Yeah, well, um, Stuart was singing along to it, which is um, why I chimed in. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's a sing-along song. It's, I mean, we, it, it really is. if we, yeah, if we had listeners, we could push that back in the charts. I would think. Anyway, I'm only. Do joking, we do we not do we not have listeners? We I, do I, have I, listeners I actually. That... They're they're tweeting us, so uh, so that's fine. It's amazing. We, uh, I would say we've got what uh, is often called a cult audience. Um, mm. it's, um, <laughs> small, but select, you know, it's the people who are up in the middle of the night and, uh, expats, et cetera, et cetera. It's apparently they're passionate people. These people are absolutely passionate. Um, now you, you, our clocks go back, uh, tomorrow and I gather you, yours do exactly the same. Yeah, they, they do. Sometimes there's this strange thing where historically there's been like a week gap between, uh, between the UK and, uh, and Mexico and the switch, but they go back uh, Saturday, Sunday at the same time. But here it will be hypothetically the final time that it ever happens. Yeah. Um, yep. Summertime, what is called daylight saving here is started in 96, but it's been decided here that actually the energy use differential was what, which is one of the big things that was, was always cited about it that, you know, reduces energy use actually is minor and that actually there's a lot of research now. That states that, or is suggesting that there's a whole heap of health implications related to very specifically the weeks around the actual change of the time. So not specifically to do with, you know, more darkness or more light, but more to do with the fact that people actually really struggle when the time changes to get back into a new cycle. And that has uh, very specific, uh, both physical and mental health implications and, and that Mexico doesn't want to go down that way anymore. So, yeah, in 24 hours, well, 30 hours will be the final change that we have here. There will still be some exceptions to this to this rule. Interestingly, a lot of the border cities with the U.S. actually um, have, continue to have or have uh, they share a time with the border city, so they're more connected to what's going on in the U.S. than in uh, than in Mexico. Tijuana is actually one of those cases in in point, and then Quintana Roo, so where Cancun is in the Mayan Riviera in the southeast also has its own time schedule because it wants to encourage tourism and have light evenings and right. so on. So there's the odd little exception related to that. But basically what we're talking about is 80% of Mexico, the broad center of, uh, of Mexico and around Mexico City is yeah, hypothetically never changing its clocks ever again. Right. And, and you mentioned Tijuana there, which is just over the border from San Diego. I was speaking to some people who'd uh, spent time in San Diego and really loved it, but never went over the border to uh, Tijuana. Um, but um, you're trying to persuade me to, and uh, hopefully I will. Hopefully I will in a, a couple of weeks' time. 
Um, yeah, the standard perspective is why would you go there? It's dangerous. But actually, it's not just Tijuana-based. Like sometimes I'm in the US and somebody will say to me, oh, where do you live? And I'll say, I live in Mexico. And you can see something physically happen to them. <laughs> like, <laughs> what are you doing there? Why are you there? Isn't it crazy dangerous and so on? It is, complete, it is completely outside of the broad scope of what people in the U.S. you know b- believe is is healthy and sane is is living in Mexico. And if you get, I guess, the news cycles that you get in the U.S. related to uh, migration and cartels and, and and drugs and so on, then you know if, if all that you're exposed to is that, then of course you're going to have a certain perspective. But that's very definitely not you know the the day to day of life here in Mexico and the uh, amazing people that you come across on a daily basis right across the country. Yeah, well, you, well let's talk about uh, Tijuana uh, and community activism because um, economically, it's an economically deprived place, isn't it? And in, in places like that, you see the same throughout the UK, actually, uh, you know, in former mining towns and things, uh, there's a great stress on community activities, you know, on groups setting up to try and make life better for people. Yeah, people coming together. And actually, the one which I, I, I was going to highlight with you this week, Martin, in our occasional Tijuana series is that there's this actual, this this fascinating binational friendship garden park of native plants that's on both sides of the border, San Diego and Tijuana. So this isn't just people on one side of the border coming together. It's people organizing with people, with their compatriots on the other side of the border as well, and coming together on both sides of this fence and actually planting in particular native plants, but also more recently, um, planting uh, fruit, vegetables, well, vegetables in, in particular, but planting fruit trees and so on, that can then be used locally uh, to help feed uh, uh, people, you know, indigent individuals or people who are struggling on the border, because there are a lot of people also in stasis there waiting for, for something to happen. And this has been in place, Friendship Park started in 2007. Interestingly and fascinatingly, uh, wasn't even a sort of a high-profile uh, program of work or, or organized by even adults. It was a brainchild of the of the Kinimeta High School in San Diego and the Colegio de Tijuana on the other side in, in Mexico. And they came together and, and largely or essentially uh, started planting on, uh, and also importantly mirroring. So one of the big, I guess, political messages that they're sending is that they plant the same plants on both sides of the border, which obviously mm. they made. Yeah, they're, what they're actually saying is this is the same space. You know, you, we have this this huge border here, but actually, you know, we are the same people on both sides. And I guess what loosely is or the attempt that's, uh, that's being made there on, on the one hand, it's to, like this border there is such a so high profile, so visible, so commanding a presence. So one of the things they're trying to do with this this planting of, uh, uh, of, of native plants is to, I guess, remove extract from the overwhelming visual of the of the border wall, of the border fence, of course, also, you know, enhance collaboration and unity and also, you know, say that despite these divisions that we can be together. And as I say, and also this new uh, nascent food program that's been going on for, for a few years. Interestingly and curiously, the Friendship Park is really well used on the Mexican side of the border at the moment. Like it's a regular sort of evening, weekend uh, destination for families in Tijuana, but actually the border patrol in um, on the U.S. side almost completely destroyed, with no notice at all, the Friendship Park in 2020, and now massively restrict access. You have to apply for access. Uh, it's done in. You're vetted to get 
close to the border. Um, it's in no more than small groups and so on. So it's really interesting also that the politically, the difference between one side and the other and what's allowed and, and not allowed. But one of the things which actually the, the organizers of you know, the people who are in charge of the, of the Friendship Garden now say is that this destruction that took place two years ago, if it's had a, a single positive effect, it's that it's, it's brought the community even closer together. They've got four times the number of volunteers now on both sides of the border oh. than they had in 2020 before this, before the destruction happened. Yeah, oh, it's a shame about the destruction, but uh, as you say, at least it's had that uh, positive uh, side effect. Um, into the world of sport, of course, you have got the uh, Mexico Grand Prix in uh, Mexico City uh, this weekend. Uh, and I should imagine that's quite an important event for uh, for Mexico City in terms of uh, tourism, etc., etc. It's going to be one of the events that will uh, will attract people. To, I know a lot of people do holiday in Mexico, in Cancun, etc. Um, but um, maybe as far as visitors to Mexico City goes, the uh, the Grand Prix is a, a big weekend. Yeah, I think it's twofold. One is for sure uh, tourism; it draws people to, you know, in particular a certain kind of of uh, of person to uh to mexico city has certainly drawn a lot of news coverage and attention here and i think the other thing which you know the, the big reason behind this is because it, it largely is uh, an attempt to present mexico city increasingly as a world city a world destination for you know some of the biggest events uh that can take place globally so it also has i guess you know um uh, political agenda behind it, at least in, in that sense and in, in that context, because Formula One, despite it being uh, to a large extent still quite, I mean, in terms of its, you know, what it is, uh, with the cars and the, and the mechanics and the engines on quite a niche, uh, pursuit. Actually, the, the amount of coverage that it reaches internationally is phenomenal constant. coverage. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it is completely international as well. That's the other thing about it. Generally speaking, you know, outside of things like, World Cups and so on, most coverage of sporting events will have a particular focus in certain areas, but the Grand Prix are a fully international yeah. uh, sport. Absolutely. Um, and I was quite amused to read that um, Eric Cantona is um, he, he, he's not interested in the World Cup in Qatar. You know, politically, he's against it. He don't, doesn't think the World Cup should have gone to Qatar. And instead, he's going on a, a, a motorcycle uh, trip to South America to get away from it all. And I thought, well, if you want to get away from the World Cup, uh, Latin America is <laughs> probably not the first destination you'd think of. Um, but anyway, it, I mean, World Cup fever is uh, is gripping uh, Latin America. Uh, so we're going to have a look at one or two of the teams um, or one or two of the places uh, that have uh, qualified. And uh, we'll start this week with Uruguay. So uh, tell me a little bit about Uruguay, their chances and, uh, you know, what the general feeling is there. Yeah, I think that their chances are pretty good. I mean, they've actually got more of a pedigree than most people, you know, ever think and consider the country races. Yeah, they were there with a big team there. And there's this movement, of course, to take football home as well for the next cycle in what will be uh, 2030. Um, and that's very much that's being used there. With the, with the teams that have qualified from Latin America, you basically you can split them into three. You've got Brazil and Argentina. And we all know, you know, what Brazil and Argentina are are capable of. And then I guess at the, in the bottom third tier, you've got Ecuador and Costa Rica. Um, and you know, if they get out of their group, then they will be very happy to to have achieved that. And then you've got the other two, Mexico and Uruguay, ranked 13th and 14th, respectively, um, uh, both of um, whom, I guess, 
um, especially Mexico, perennial sort of quarterfinalists or round of 16 participants. Um, but Uruguay really have a pretty uh, solid, if not amazing, side with figures like Edison Cavani, of course, that we know previously from uh, from Manchester United now with Valencia, yeah, yeah. Federico Valverde, uh, Real Madrid, you know, a, a real mainstay and figurehead for them now, Rodrigo Betancourt from Spurs, and of course, Luis Suarez has now gone back to, to Nacional. So, you know, they, they absolutely have a, 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 a massively strong representation that on their day can pretty, pretty much take anybody down. If you look at their group, Group H, you've got your Portugal, Ghana, Ghana, South Korea. So you would expect... Uh, Portugal and Uruguay to come through mm, that group. It's a tough group, though. It's, yeah, it it's is. still tough, it that is. one, yeah. And it's, and it's all the more tough because whoever ends up in second place in that group is going to play off in the round of 16 against Brazil, which nobody wants to do, of course. So it makes it all that more uh, pressurised an environment. Having said which, um, I think if either Portugal or Uruguay um, play off against Brazil in the round of 16. I mean, it's not to say that they, they, they would be favourites in that game, but I think both of them would fancy their chances against uh, Brazil, which despite being top of the world rankings at the moment, definitely has a soft underbelly. Yeah, I mean, obviously the shame for Uruguay is that I suspect too old now, he's about 35, um, maybe not, I, mean, I don't know, is he in contention for playing in the, in the uh, international team? I think he really is. I think he's yeah. going to. I mean, let's let's see how badly wrong I get this, but I think he's going to be. He's definitely going to be in the squads, if not as a starter. And if you look at, say, as a comparison between Suarez and Messi, um, and their their impact in international matches and World Cups, I mean, both of them really are coming towards the end of their careers. But I would stake money. Uh, much more on Luis Suarez having a serious impact on this World Cup no, with, with his drive, with his having returned home to play for Nacional in this, you know, just a, a, a couple of months ago and so on. And the drive that he has always had and now coming to the end of his career, the increased drive that he has to make a statement much more so than perhaps Messi with Argentina. So I, I think he's one of the players to watch, even though he's, you know, he's reaching the end of his career. Yeah, although a lot of people reckon Messi is in uh, tremendous form coming into this uh, World Cup. So it'll be quite interesting. Be, uh, what would be interesting is if Suarez comes up against uh, Ronaldo, um, who's also, I suppose, a contender for uh, for Portugal, and uh, that's in the same group. Um, that would give great encouragement to over, <laughs> over 35s everywhere, uh, should that happen. Um, yep, so, you and I, yeah. you and I uh, could still, you know, maybe... No, I'm, I'm a bit too far over 35. You, you possibly. Um, John, as always, thank you uh, ever so much. Uh, do appreciate it. Uh, and we'll talk again next week, if that's OK. Take care. Speak soon. Good man. Uh, there we go. There's uh, John Bonfield.